Governor Pritzker is unveiling a $500 million plan to spur early childhood care and education. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news from the local housing market. There's a Catholic girls' school campus that has been there since 1890. It was originally just called The Josephinum. Now it's called Josephinum Academy. August 1890, that school opened, and now the property is for sale. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, February 16th. Your business isn't an afterthought, so why would you settle for a bank that treats you like one? At Wintrust, small business clients are matched with a personal relationship manager who offers customized solutions and prioritizes their needs. And that personal touch works. Last year, Wintrust lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making them the number one SBA lender in the state. Start expecting more from your bank. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, to talk about news from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? Great, Amy. How are you? I'm great. We've got lots and lots of stuff to talk about this week. Let's see. Let's start with a uh, a $6 million Lincoln Park home with a vegetable garden on top. I am all ears about this. Yeah. $6 million. It's on Fremont Street in Lincoln Park. And I got to tell you, it's very rare for me to do an interview with a seller particularly of a high-end home in Lincoln Park, where he says, yeah, it's nice to go out and pick dinner, which I thought was pretty cool because I thought, oh, you know, vegetable garden on the roof. They have a couple of boxes of cherry tomatoes, but no, they have six varieties of tomatoes, six varieties of carrots. They grow sweet potatoes, potatoes, squash. I can't remember what all else. It's a really interesting house that this pharmaceutical executive, Paul Edick, is selling for just under $6 million dollars. It had a, an architect, but he did a lot of the design around what he wanted, like rooftop garden, which apparently he has had at previous homes. It's a long, slender house, like a lot of city homes, but it gets even more slender sort of as you go back, because essentially it's not quite an atrium, but it's like an atrium because glass wall on one side with staircase, and on the other side, it's sort of a second story open space above the kitchen. The point of all that is there's just daylight pouring down into this home. And then there are also outdoor spaces on the, uh, well, at the ground level, but on the second and third floors, as well as a rooftop uh, where they have both the garden and, and you know, a sitting area. So it's, it's a really interesting sort of modern take on the Lincoln Park house. Very pretty, nice finishes. Um, he's an interesting guy, uh, CEO of a firm called Xeris Biopharma, which Danny Ecker has reported on a few times because they they had a headquarters in Chicago and, and lab space in San Diego. They moved the lab space here to Fulton Market, and then eventually they combined their headquarters office and their labs in 87,000 square feet on Fulton Market, which Danny reported was a real sort of feather in the cap of this life sciences industry that's developing not only on Fulton Market, but in other parts of the city. But primarily, he was talking about what's going on there. And now we see the home of the man who's doing it. They're selling it because, he said, uh, his wife spends most of her time in Arizona. Their kids and grandkids are in other locations. And he said, it's just too much house for, hmm. for my use. 
Right. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up closer to Fulton Market, but of course, I don't know that. That's just sort of a, a guess on my part. Sure. And if you're used to living with a vegetable garden on your roof, I feel like that's very specific criteria of where you end up living. Yeah. And and you're not the type, apparently, to move way out into the country where you can have a you know five acres of vegetable garden. Sure. That's so interesting, though. I, I like to see people being creative with uh, growing space. So let's move to another house. Um, actors Tracy Letts and Carrie Coon have sold their Bucktown house. Tell me about this. They sold it uh, just a few days ago for $3.1 million. This It's funny, Amy. I wrote about them, him. By, he, uh, Carrie Coon was not his wife at the time. He was not married. Uh, but he bought it in 2009 for $3 million. And so it's one of those I actually, you know, I have a very visual memory I remember what it looked like in 2009, so it pops up on the listings. Anyway, he bought it. He bought it in 2009 for three million. Sold it this week for 3.1 million. So you know, 13 plus years go by, and you've made about three percent on the house. So that's not ideal, but it's beautiful. It's on. Um, it's on Wilmot, which is a street that dead ends at the 606. This house. I'm not quite sure if this house has a view because the lots are all sort of higgledy-piggledy in there, and his is triangular. So I don't know whether they actually look at the 606, but a lot of the houses there were built because the 606 was coming. This was built before he bought it. Um, Really nice inside. It's a little, on the exterior, it's a little hard, not many windows, a little sort of bulky, but you go inside and just wonderful. Lots of light, beautiful wrought iron screens that sort of act like curtains between rooms. Big open glass doorway, door, uh, big glass openings, doors and windows out onto outdoor patios, both first floor and second. Really a very pretty house. And I guess for people who don't know, I should say who Tracy Letts and Carrie Coons are. Carrie Coon are. Tracy Letts uh, is a Steppenwolf Ensemble member of Long Term, uh, best known for, he wrote several plays. He's an actor and a playwright, wrote several, but he wrote August Osage County. Uh, which premiered at Steppenwolf and then went to Broadway. He that play for that play he got a Pulitzer, um, also uh, a Tony Award. He is also a Tony Award winning actor for his performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, and has written several other plays, been in movies, TV. Carrie Coon, his wife. So again, he bought this in two thousand nine. In two thousand twelve. They were in Steppenwolf's production. They were both in Steppenwolf's production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that went to Broadway. As I said, he won a Tony. She was nominated for a Tony for her role. Um, For people who know Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, there's an older married couple and a younger married couple. He He was the husband in the older married couple in this production. She was the wife in the younger married couple. Um, They got married in 2013. They have both, of course, continued to perform ever since. And earlier this year, they put, I'm sorry, in 2022, they put the house on the market for $4 million, cut the price. This is where it gets interesting. It actually sort of gets dramatic, which is appropriate given the sellers. Um, Price cuts, price cuts, price cuts down to $3 million, and then it sells for $3.1. I don't know the whole story. I reached the uh, agent for the buyers who said, who all he would say is, yes, there was a lot of interest once the price hit $3 million. So I think there were multiple offers. I don't know that. Um, but it's kind of interesting that like he cut the price, they cut the price all the way to what he had paid in 2009. But then they came away with a little bit of a pretty slender proceeds, but proceeds nonetheless. 
Yeah. I, I wonder if that, that story will ever be revealed of exactly how that went down. I'd love them to call me. You know, as I say that on here all the time, I wish these sellers would call me, especially because I don't know about you, but I love August Osage County. Yeah, for sure. That would be cool to, to talk with him. All right. Well, not far from Bucktown, Wicker Park, uh, there's a, a development opportunity that has just opened up there. Tell me about this. Yeah, boy, this is really interesting. Um, there's a Catholic girls' school campus that has been there since 1890. Um, at, at, essentially at 1500 Hoyne, um, Josephinum. It was originally just called the Josephinum. Now it's called Josephinum Academy. August 1890, that school opened, and now the property is for sale. Um, it's not for sale by the school. Just to be clear, the the school is operated separately from the ownership of the land. The land is still owned by the religious order that founded the school, but it has spun off the school. Um, the religious order is the Sisters of Christian Charity, and um, they have a they are leasing the school buildings and grounds to Josephinum, um, which again is separately incorporated. And they uh, have given Josephinum notice that the lease expires June 30, 2025, and they don't plan to renew. So the the president of the school told me that he's trying to raise money to buy it. If they aren't able to buy it, then it seems very likely this becomes residential. It's thirty; it's the equivalent of thirty-nine lots. Um, it, there's really been nothing come on the market in Wicker Park, or really in most neighborhoods that are developed. Um, thirty-nine lots is a big piece of ground, and um, so we don't know. It, it's for sale. That's that's really as far as it goes. We don't know. Would it be approved for single-family homes? Would it be approved for condos and townhouses in multi-unit buildings? So you don't know really how much would be put there. A lot of that would come from a developer's proposal. Um, the the real estate the CBRE agents representing the property told me that it was appraised in 2018 at 2.4 million dollars. So my assumption is the Josephinum School is trying to raise that amount. I don't know if that's what they would offer. All they would tell me is that they have commitments uh, or that people have made commitments to their fundraising. But it's kind of interesting. I mean, this if it does go to development, first of all, it's extremely likely that it would go residential because um, it's in a residential area. It, the underlying zoning is residential. Uh, it's not on a big street. It's not on an exterior street. There's been a lot of um, large apartment buildup on Milwaukee Avenue, on Division, things like that. But this is an interior street. This was built next to St. Aloysius Church back in 1890, and um, the neighborhood sort of grew up around it, very residential area. So uh, we're likely to see some discussions of what happens. The alderman, Daniel Espada, apparently is scheduling community meetings now. So we'll see, um, you know, what does the community push for there? What do developers offer? Does the school end up raising the money to buy the site? There's a lot we're going to have to watch in the near future. Yeah, definitely. We will revisit that that down the road. Um, speaking of developments, though, talk to me about how um, housing has been greenlit for the revamp of the old AT&T campus. Yeah, boy. So this is, this is almost the opposite story to the Josephinum one because um, AT&T had this giant um, uh, corporate campus in Hoffman Estates, just off the tollway, left it years ago, and there's a developer 
redoing it as what he calls a metro burb. His name is Ralph Zucker. He's based in New Jersey, did the same thing with another um, former AT&T campus in New Jersey, where it's a mix of um, he, he's going to he's keeping the office building, the, the giant uh, AT&T office building, but it's being divided up. There are restaurants and two different gyms and offices. He's got some office tenants already in there. And then the, the idea is you build housing all around it. And so that uh, regardless of whether I work in those offices, but that would be one reason to live nearby, even if I don't work in the offices, I, I'm in this little village that has restaurants and stores and all that that I can walk directly to. He calls it a metro burb. Um, so he's gotten some leasing done in that big building, that main building. And now he's also gotten from the Hoffman Estates board approval to build 164 townhouses. He said he expects construction to start this spring and sort of a tentative approval, more of a co- approval of concept for 300 apartments. The idea is, you know, it all sort of comes together. You fill up the big building, you bring in housing and um, you create, you know, a little village or what he calls a metro burb. And there's one thing I really love about this project. Um, Dirk Lohan, who is a prominent Chicago architect, designed those old AT&T buildings as well as other things, the McDonald's corporate campus and other things. The firm he's with now, White & Associates, is doing the redesign of this campus for uh, as a metro burb. And um, uh, they've added, they've had to add one street in the residential section. So it's called Lohan. Oh. So people would be living on the street named for the guy who did all the design. And what kind of timeline is attached to that project? Well, this is a multi-year concept. Um, yeah. They expect to sure. start building the first of the townhouses this year. Um, and then, you know, when something's under construction, it's several months, if not a year before occupancy. They haven't yet designed the apartments. They've just gotten conceptual approval. So this is the sort of thing that will take several years. It's They're, they're finished in uh, or nearly finished for the similar project in New Jersey. It's not exactly the same, um, but that had pretty quick absorption of the housing. So we'll see if the same is true here in Hoffman Estates. Yeah, certainly. We will revisit that story again, too. So we've got some condos to talk about now. Let's start by talking about Carl Street Studios, which is such a unique property. We've talked about this before. It's really interesting. I, I can't say there's there's much like it out there, but uh, talk to me about this. Yeah. You know, for people who don't know, Carl Street is on Burton Place. The street used to be called Carl Street, which is why the studios are called Carl Street Studios. Um, it's in Old Town. It's really just a block long um, east of Wells. And in the 1920s, two former Art Institute classmates, Edgar Miller and Saul Kogan, got together and took an old Victorian that was sort of run down and completely redid it in this wonderfully vibrant, colorful way. All their fellow artists came and did carvings and tile work and murals and all that sort of thing. They were trying to recreate studios they saw in Paris. Um, And so this big Victorian gets divided up into a bunch of really colorful, fun, unusual apartments, later converted to condos. And in 2003, one couple bought, um, well, two of the condos had been combined and then they they bought that and they bought a third. So they had a combination of three condos, big space, about 7,000 square feet uh, that they paid $2.3 million for. That's 2003. 
They first put it on the market in 2009. And over the course of years, I've covered it several times because it's still for sale today. Uh, most of it is still for sale today. When they put it on the market in 2009, that's back when I used to do video tours of properties. And we walked all through. It's so full of color, um, tile carvings, beautiful milk white plaster walls, stained glass. It's a remarkable space, but again, didn't sell. And the last time I wrote about it was last June when it, uh, the, the combination of three came on the market at about $1.5 million, down again from 2.6 over the course of years. Uh, then it went off the market. And this past week, it came back on, or most of it came back on. Again, it was a combination of three condos. Um, they sliced off one, sold it for four hundred thousand. It had a kitchen of its own. It was it was like first floor and basement, while the others are ground level up to the fourth floor. Um, carved that off, sold that for four hundred thousand, and still have the combination of two for sale at about one point one million. So rather than seven thousand square feet for one point five million, it's forty five hundred square feet for one point one million. This is, it's very puzzling to me because this is such a work of art. It is, I mean, when you walk through this place, you can't help but be dazzled. It may not be the style you want, but you can't, or the style of art you want, but you can't help but just be completely transfixed by the artistry of the carvings and the beautiful sort of art modern lines, the built-ins, murals, stained glass. It's just absolutely wonderful. And so now at 1.1 million, um, I mean, this is a, pretty darn good price. And I would hope that now after about 14 years, it will actually find a new owner. All right. Let's talk about a, uh, a condo in River North that you recently reported on. Oh yeah. Well, so speaking of great architects, yeah. speaking of great architecture in Chicago, the one we were talking about is very 1920s, very sort of exuberant and fun. This is in Contemporane, built in the early 2000s, designed by an architect you and I have talked about before, Ralph Johnson, really one of the most eminent present-day architects in Chicago. He is uh, responsible for so many buildings around the city and all over the world. Uh, he really is a world leader in architecture. And in the early 2000s in River North, he designed a building called Contemporane, concrete, um, glass, just this wonderful um the way it's different from a lot of other buildings is it's not it's not box shaped. It is it's rectilinear, but it has balconies that jut off in various directions. It has sort of a rooster tail up at the top of a big um, sort of folded concrete, so that it's not classic Chicago flat walls, regardless of whether they're embellished with beams and everything else. It has a lot of texture just in its form. And then when you go inside the condos, you've got walls of glass, you've got ceilings and floors of concrete, although this one has, uh, this one actually has wood floors, but, um, and you have balconies in the case of this condo, they have one big balcony, room-sized balcony that actually has a ceiling so that you can use it nearly all year. And these sellers, <coughs> pardon me, these sellers who put it on the market because um, their kids have gotten older, uh, they, they bought it when the kids were younger and now they need a lot more space because kids need, you know, well, they have a music studio in the basement, et cetera, at their house in Westtown. Um, but they bought it in 2017 for 1.03 million. They've put it on the market for the same price. Uh, it's about 2000 square feet. And they talked about how 
you know, they, they spend any decent weather out on that open balcony. They, and even when they're not out there, they can see the city all around because they've got these glass walls uh, from the primary bedroom. You're looking at the beautiful expanse of the uh, north wall of the merchandise mart. They're looking at lights glittering everywhere out their windows. You can cover those windows if you want, they said, but why would you? Because it's like having a giant flat screen display of a beautiful city all around you. All right. And that leads us to our other condo I want to talk about, and that is uh, the highest priced condo on the market in Chicago. Tell me about this. <laughs> yeah, $16.8 million. That is, that's quite an asking price. This is in a building on Gothi, 65 East Gothi. It's known as designed to look very Parisian. Um, we keep talking about these nice, these nice pieces of architecture, but why shouldn't we? We're in Chicago where there's a lot of it. Right. This was designed by Lucien Lagrange in the early 2000s to look like one of those buildings in Paris. Um, mansard roof, beautiful limestone exterior. And inside there are um, both what they call masonettes, which is kind of like a townhouse door directly to the street, a couple of stories tall, and condos. Well, back in... Um, Several years ago, Antonio Gracias and Sabrina Gracias, I reported at the time, bought up the condos, all the condos on one floor. They assembled a 12,400 square foot condo out of the pieces. They spent about $13.6 million doing this. I don't know what they spent on finishes. You can tell from the photos, uh, they probably spent a lot. This is a 23 room condo. It's U-shaped like the footprint of the uh, of the building. And just as one example, it has kitchens in both legs of the U because why should you be bothered to walk all the way around to the other side of your condo when you want some microwave popcorn? Um, it has, uh, so I think I said it has 23 rooms. It has a whole suite of um, sort of uh, game areas. There's a, there's a ping pong table and a foosball table and a uh, an arcade game and all those kinds of things, because you've got so much space. You've got 12,400 square feet. This is like a giant mansion in the suburbs where, you know, I want a game room. You want an exercise room. We want two kitchens, et cetera. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And they're asking um, 16.8 million. So I said they spent 13.6 assembling it. They're asking 16.8. I don't know what they spent aside from that 13.6 in buying it, but finishing out all that space or, or making all that space harmonized together um, could have been quite expensive. Um, Antonio Gracias is the head of a, a private equity fund in Chicago. He's made big investments over time in dozens of companies, um, many of them Chicago-based, but three that people might be aware of are all connected to Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and The Boring Company. Um, and uh, they were not, they didn't talk to me, so I don't know much, uh, but it looks like quite a spectacular place. And for people who wonder, $16.8 million for a condo, last year, the top three sales in the city, top three highest price sales in the city were condos from $17.4 million to $20.5 million. So 16.8 is not an unusual number or not an unheard of number for a condo in Chicago. Yeah. Is there a chance that this would be redivided into more than one space again? Uh, I think it's possible. Um, I, I, I think probably when you have, when you've knitted this together in such a beautiful way, you probably hope that somebody wants to buy it in the form you're selling it. But 
let's go back to that Carl Street one. They knitted together three and over the course of many years realized, yeah, we can't sell it as one. Now that was not one uh, U-shaped footprint like this. This really feels as if it were, uh, as if it had been built all together. The Carl Street one was a little bit, I, I don't want to say awkward, but it, but you know, you did go from here to there to over there. Um, and so slicing one off made some sense, but we'll see, uh, you know, there, once again, there have been sales at 17 and $20 million. Somebody may want this entire space in 65 East Gothi. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see what happens with that one too. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Uh, you know, a couple of things we've talked about some very beautiful condos. There's an even more beautiful one coming on the market. I'll have that out next week. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much. We will talk this time next week. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Northwestern catches up to other Big Ten schools by now offering an important recruitment perk. We'll talk about that and more right after this. This coming February, Crane's Chicago business relaunches its executive education program in leadership development, custom designed to hone the leadership skills of executives across the Chicagoland area. We're pleased to bring you new programming from Crane's Leadership Academy designed and taught by renowned faculty from Chicago Booth School of Business. The program will benefit mid and senior level executives from the Chicagoland area across various sectors and industries who seek to heighten their leadership skills for success during these uncertain times. Sessions will be held at the Gleacher Center in downtown Chicago from February 24th through March 24th, 2023, every Friday from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. A certificate of completion from Chicago Booth and Cranes will be provided. For questions about the program, visit cranesacademy.com or email cranesacademy at crane.com. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Governor J.B. Pritzker is calling for the state to spend another nearly half billion dollars a year on much-expanded early childhood education, child care, and related activities. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that the plan to do more figures prominently in Pritzker's proposed fiscal 2024 budget. It follows promises from the governor earlier this year that significant new support for children's initiatives were on the way and has been on Pritzker's personal priority list since even before he took office. Pritzker told reporters at a preview briefing that past research has shown that money spent on youth development saves or generates $7 in the long run for every $1 spent. Under the plan, $75 million will be spent to create 5,000 new preschool spots with a goal of 15,000 more by 2027. Pritzker said that should be enough to provide a spot for every child who needs one. Another $130 million will go toward hiring more staff for pre-kindergarten programs and to better compensate their workers, with pay rising from $8 an hour a couple of years ago and $13 an hour now to an expanded $17 to $19 an hour over the next four years. Hines noted that also on the list, $40 million for early intervention programs to help vulnerable kids and $5 million for an expanded home visiting program for underserved families. And $100 million for improving buildings and facilities will be made available under the state's Rebuild Illinois Capital Program, Pritzker said, with $70 million more for direct child assistance grants, enough to cover 20,000 children. 
Hines also pointed out that former Governor Rob Lagojevich, like Pritzker, once promised to find spots in pre-kindergarten care programs for every child in need, but failed to deliver. Hines noted that when reminded of his predecessor's experience, Pritzker replied, quote, budgets were unbalanced then, adding, quote, our budget is balanced and we're running a surplus. We finally have our fiscal house in order and we ought to be investing in our future. Following 10 months of planning a new freestanding cancer center, University of Chicago Medicine is tweaking the project a bit as it adds additional space and features and accounts for higher construction costs. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that UChicago Medicine, which first announced plans for the Hyde Park Cancer Center in February of 2022, revealed an updated proposal that shows that the cost and size of the project has grown to $815 million, up from $633 million, and it's gone from 500,000 square feet up to 575,000 square feet. About $100 million of that represents an increase in construction costs relating to rising inflation over the last year, according to to UChicago Medicine's Vice President for Cancer Center Projects. Another $100 million of the extra costs accounts for additional planned space, which includes a community hub, private infusion bays, a dedicated breast cancer center, and shell space for future expansion. Davis reported that the new cancer center is aimed at both consolidating cancer care that's currently spread across five UChicago Medicine buildings, as well as providing additional comprehensive cancer services for residents on the south side, a region of Chicago that's seeing an increase in cancer cases. Davis noted that UChicago Medicine estimates that the incidence of cancer on the south side will grow 19% over the next five years, compared with 9.1% in the five collar counties surrounding Chicago. UChicago Medicine, which is the metro area's sixth largest health system by revenue, according to Crane's research, says its service area also sees elevated rates for some of the most preventable and treatable cancers, including cervical, colorectal, lung, and prostate cancers. Davis also noted that broadly, the cancer center will have 80 inpatient beds, including 64 medical surgical beds and a 16-bed intensive care unit, 90 consultation and outpatient exam rooms, infusion therapy rooms, cancer imaging suites, and clinical trial spaces. Altogether, Davis also noted, about 800 people are expected to staff the center, and about 500 construction jobs will reportedly be generated to build it. A Connecticut investment firm that just bought the Greyhound bus station near downtown Chicago has put it up for sale, wagering that a developer will buy it for a high-rise project. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that 20 Lakes Holdings has hired CBRE to sell the bus depot at 630 West Harrison, next to the Jane Byrne Interchange. Totaling about 88,000 square feet, the site could accommodate a big development, possibly with two towers, according to a senior vice president in CBRE's Chicago office, who also said she expects the property to fetch a price in the low to mid $20 million range. Galoon noted in reporting that with a bare-bones, one-page website, 20 Lakes cuts a low profile, but it's owned by a company that has attracted plenty of attention in the past several years, Alden Global Capital, the controversial New York hedge fund manager that owns the parent company of the Chicago Tribune. As an Alden subsidiary, 20 Lakes has bought and sold newspaper properties over the years, part of Alden's strategy to squeeze cash out of its holdings. But as Galoon noted, 20 Lake also invests outside the media industry. The firm owns six properties in the Chicago area, including office buildings in Hoffman Estates, Lincolnshire, and Warrenville. That according to research firm MSCI Real Assets. Galoon also reported that 20 Lakes acquired the bus station in December 
December through a $140 million deal for 33 Greyhound properties around the country. He also noted in reporting that Greyhound still operates the station under a lease that reportedly expires in a couple of years. Though Greyhound pays around $100 million a year in rent, prospective buyers are likely to look past that to the property's development potential. Under its current zoning, a new owner could clear the site and build up to 1 million square feet in its place, including zoning bonuses. But as Galoon also noted, it's unclear why 20 Lakes has decided to put the Greyhound property up for sale right now. The firm paid $25 million for the parcel in mid-December, according to Cook County property records, so it's possible it could even lose money on a sale. And Galoon also noted another unknown, and that is where Greyhound will go after its lease expires a couple of years from now. A spokesperson for Greyhound said he would inquire internally, but didn't provide an immediate answer. Northwestern University will no longer be the only school in the Big Ten without a name, image, and likeness collective, or an NIL, representing its student-athletes. Crane's Brandon Dupre reported that True NU, the first NIL collective to represent Northwestern University athletes from all 19 of the school's sports, a move that Jacob Schmidt, executive director of the collective and former director of football operations at NU, believes will set them apart, saying, quote, We want to be different in this collective space, and so we will support athletes from all 19 of our varsity programs. He added, quote, I can very confidently say that we are the only collective in the country supporting athletes from every varsity sport. For background, in 2021, the NCAA reversed course on a long-standing policy that prevented college athletes from making money from their fame and popularity. Collectives, supported by deep-pocketed donors and alumni, soon popped up all over the country offering student-athletes a chance to make money off their brands for the first time. Dupre noted that now True NU will need to get up to speed quickly to catch up to rival schools that launched shortly after the NCAA's decision, giving them an advantage in the crowded and competitive field of college recruiting. While NIL collectives aren't allowed to participate in the recruiting process per NCAA rules, student-athletes are often aware of which programs have strong NIL support, which can tip the scales when deciding between schools. Dupre also reported that since the quiet launch in the fall, the collective has already raised nearly seven figures, according to a true NU board member. The goal is to raise 3 to $4 million each year for Northwestern athletes through corporate and charitable partnerships, as well as donations from the alumni base. The collective has already brokered NIL deals with athletes from three of the school's varsity sports teams. As Dupre also noted in reporting, True NU launches as Northwestern is working on a proposal for a reported $800 million stadium project to rebuild Ryan Field. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.